you have your Bibles this morning, I, I want you to invite you to turn over to uh, Proverbs chapter 17. We're going to start chapter 17 today. You remember last week we uh, finished up uh, and finished out uh, uh, Proverbs chapter 16, which was an incredible chapter. You know, every chapter in Proverbs, once we got past the first seven or eight chapters where he's given us, you know, the things that we want to learn from it. Once we have gotten into the Proverbs themselves, it's just been an incredible chapter after chapter. You know, and chapter 16 was a great chapter on everyday principles of living and the life that we have to go through here on planet Earth. You know, uh, just to recap, you know, look, remember some of the things that we saw, just kind of like the highlights. The whole thing, chapter 16, was blanket under the concept of, of getting God's wisdom and understanding. And then we talked about going our way or, or going God's way in life. You know, life is just that simple. It's not complicated. As a Christian, you're either going to go God's way or you're going to go your own way. And there's no halfway. It's either one or the other. Of course, we know that. We looked at teaching our mouths and adding learning to our lips, how important it is to learn how to be able to speak to things intelligently, biblically, that people can get from you what, uh, what God wants the, uh, them to have. We talked about a great verse there that talks about that there is a way that seemeth right unto men, but the end thereof are the ways of death. How that not everything uh, that looks in life like it's a good thing uh, really is. And this is where God's wisdom and understanding is able to show us you know, what is and what isn't, to keep us from making those tragic mistakes of life. We talked about how that uh, so many people labor for the things uh, that they want and don't ever waste the time laboring for things or do the time of laboring for things for God wants and how important it is to understand the great principle. Psalms 127.1, talked about it many, many times, except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain that build it. If God isn't in what you're building, then you're wasting your time in doing it and make, building it for yourself. And then we got talked about the, you know, the, the more uh, getting older and the more God uh, gets of us, the older we get, uh, how that we are to look at what God gives us, the truth that we have, uh, that we are simply the custodians of that truth. That it's not, it's our truth, but it's, it's not our truth. It's God's truth. I mean, maybe mine that he gave it to me and it may get me through life, but I'm just a custodian of it. It doesn't end with me. It continues on. Uh, and we talked about the older Christians, men and women, taking the younger ones in, which so many of you do here, and help them come along and give them the things of God. And then lastly, we talked about how God is in total charge of everything in our lives. We talked about the whole disposing of a matter is of the Lord. He, he takes care of it all. He, he's in complete charge of it. And you know, as I looked through this chapter last week, uh, I, I was drawn to verse 1 because that's really where it all starts. And that was an incredible verse in Proverbs 16.1 where it says, The preparation of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. That's it. You do your work putting the Word of God in your life, giving the things that you need putting them in there, studying, hiding the Word of God in your heart. And when you need those things, when you do your preparation, the answer, the adding to the lips and the answer that you give to people will come from, from the Lord. So now today we're going to look at our opening verses in Proverbs chapter 17. And again, some great practical stuff here. Some stuff that I think that will uh, open your eyes to maybe some things, to help you understand better some things. 
and maybe just help you look at your own life and get it. Let's read it here. It says, Better is a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife. A wise servant shall have rule over a son that causes shame and shall have part of the inheritance among the brethren. The fining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord trieth the hearts. Three great verses, and I want to talk to you about that. And uh, let's go to prayer this morning, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll go to the Word of God. Zach, would you stand up and get, uh, ask God's blessing on the message today? Heavenly Father, we come here today needing some food, some spiritual food, Lord. We're in an age where we're increased with goods, rich, and in need of nothing, Father. But we understand that we do need you, and that this is the time for us to, to get that. Amen. Father, I pray that you would be with Dad today as he preaches to us. Just uh, work on his heart and help him to deliver this the way you put it on his heart. Help us to receive it and do something with it. We pray and ask these things in your son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, verse 1 says, and we're just going to take these three verses today, and uh, I want to just talk about them for a moment, each one. Verse 1 says, Better is a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife. Now, you may look at that verse in Proverbs, and most people, when they, very honestly, when they read Proverbs, they don't know what they're reading. It's, it's, it's Greek to them. It's, uh, it's like it was something from another language. They don't really grasp because Proverbs is written on a hand of wisdom. And with people without wisdom can never attain anything that is wisdom when it's given to them. But I want to break it down for you today and show you how these, these verses are incredible verses. Now it says this. This chapter begins with a principle we saw back in chapter 15. Uh, and it's a real key to everything in our lives. The aspect of being content in life with what we have. I think the problem that everybody gets into, no matter what it may be, I think the root problem of every issue we have is that we are simply not satisfied in its fundamental concept of what we have with God. We see something, we see this, we see a circumstance, we see what somebody has that we don't have. And once we, we want to have those things, it's easy for us just to lose our focus. And, uh, uh, you know, we talked about it many, many times in 1 Timothy 6, 6, where it says godliness with contentment is great gain. And, and that is such a powerful verse, and it's so true. You know, just being satisfied with what you have. But we're so focused all the time on focusing on the things that we don't have. And, and I understand it. The world is geared that way. If, if a Christian shouldn't stay away from the world for any other reason, and I'm going to tell you there's a lot of reasons to stay away from the world. But if a Christian, if I just had one reason why you, as a man or a woman, mom or dad, you kids, should stay away from the world. And it has nothing to do with alcohol or drugs or all of the stuff that goes on that wrecks so many people's lives. If there was just one reason why you, can, as a Christian, should stay away from the world, it would be simply this. The world, all time, 24-7, displays in front of you what you don't have. It just displays in front of you what you don't have. You drive down the freeway, and you see billboards geared to make you think, I want one of those. You watch a football game, and the commercials come on. And it's, 
It's Ford Talk Truck, or it's this, or it's Buick, or it's Rams Power, or whatever. And you sit there, and they display everything, and you think, I want one of those. Everything in life, everything the world does, fundamentally, is aimed at what you don't have. And when you're not content with God and what you do have, you fall into that trap. You might as well just say, hey, when you go out to the mall... They call them just display windows. I call them things that you don't have windows. (laughs) Say to your spouse tonight, if you don't have anything to do, why don't we just get in a car and drive over to the mall and walk around and see what we don't have? (laughs) If there was one thing the world does for us, that... If I had one thing that that I just wanted nothing to do with the world, and there's plenty of things in the world we don't have nothing to do with, but I'm telling you, that's a fundamental problem right there. Not being content with what we have. You remember back in chapter 15, verses 16 and 17, it said, better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. We talked about the fact that the more you have, the more trouble you have. The greatest life on the planet was designed by God in Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3. It was life in a garden where everything was simple. He says in verse 17 back in 15 when we looked at it, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. And through the wisdom and understanding of God, realizing that circumstances and physical situations are simply where God wants us to be. And that when we are faced with something, it's exactly where God wants to be. And he will be sufficient for us in everything that we do. And we get our contentment from that. We realize that, hey, you know what? And it's not wrong to want things. It's not wrong to want a better house or a better car or better clothes or better. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't want to stand up here and say that, you know, as a Christian, you just had to go through your life not wanting anything. That's not realistic either. But you got to have a contentment. You got to understand that you can't go through life focusing on the things that you don't have. You'll never enjoy what you do have because your attentions always be on what isn't really there. Simply better is little with God than all the world without Him. It's just that simple. Amen. And you know, uh, The older you get, the more complex your life becomes. And I, I think about it all the time. When I, was, when I was 20 years old, 30 years old, I didn't take any medicine for anything. Most of you don't either. Now, maybe in, unfortunately, in the world that we live in, some of you parents put their kids on Prozac when they're six months old and they stay on those the rest of their lives. But I'm not talking about that. You, you, you didn't have any kidney problems if you're just a normal person. You didn't have any heart issues. You didn't have any high blood pressure. You didn't have any cholesterol problems or you didn't have any, you know, uh, triglycerides, whatever they are. You didn't have any of that. You were healthy. You were young. You were strong. But you know what? When you begin to hit 40 and 50, you go to the doctor, and one day he says, you know, uh, your blood pressure's a little high. I, I want to put you on this. But your triglycerides are like 6,500. That's pretty high. 
Let me, you need to try to handle that with a diet. Well, a diet doesn't do it. Well, your cholesterol through the roof. Diet doesn't do it. Well, we got to put you on this medicine. And you know, uh, by the time you're 60, 70 years old, you're a pharmacy. You're a walking pharmacy. You take something for everything. I mean, you got so many, it, it, it gets complicated. And the problem is, that's so much like life. The simpler your life is, the less complicated all of the things that you put in, it becomes. And when you start taking all those medicines, trust me, I hated taking medicine. Now, I got a whole line of them in the morning I got to take and in the evening. And it's tough to remember everything that you take, but it's a thing where then you have to deal with the sound effects of everything. You can take this and you feel better, but then you walk around with your nose stuffed up all the time like you got a cold. You take this, and now you feel better with here, but your mouth feels like the Sahara Desert all the time. And they say, take this medicine and, and then suck on a hard piece of candy. And then your cholesterol goes up because the candy's got sugar in it. And now you're in trouble again. My point is this. The older you get and the more medicine you take, the more side effects you get, the more complicated everything becomes. And in your life, and my life, the more we let things in, and the more complicated we put in, the more side effects and compounding effects we have in things in life, the more complicated it becomes. I mean, it's just the way it is. Uh, I, I, I don't have a good answer to it other than godliness with contentment is great gain. And you know, when I, 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 I look at that verse, you know, better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure. And better is the dry morsel with quietness therewith and the house full of sacrifices. And I, I, I just look at things and I, you know, I, I love the contrast things in life. I really do. And I think the older you get and the shorter, you know, your life is and, you, and the more things you have to go through, I, I think you pay attention more. And I, and I you know, I, I got thinking about this verse all week long and I thought, you know, how rich some people think they are and how rich some people who think they are really aren't. Because it's never enough. Uh, you know, Pope Francis, uh, the, the Pope now, uh, he's kind of a unique guy. All the other popes, all the other popes that were there, they lived in a basilica palace. They wore gold clothing, literal gold clothing. They had a thousand servants. They had this gigantic, uh, you know, castle or whatever that they lived in. Everybody was hand and foot for them. They never had anything they ever had to do ever again the rest of their life. He's not like that. He chose to live in an apartment. He chose to wear normal clothes, just like he did when he was out on the street. Where the popes now, the old popes got in cars and, and drove wherever they went in their little pope mobile or whatever it was. And, you know, they, they kept the people back. This guy will make him stop and get out. He'll kiss lepers. He'll kiss babies. He'll kiss deformed people. You see, he's content with what he has. And he doesn't want all that pomp and circumstance because that's where he wants to stay. He doesn't want to get it complicated. I look at a guy like Donald Trump. Donald Trump is probably one of the richest men in the world. He flies around in a 747 or whatever it is. I mean, you know how much that costs to fly it for an hour? Let alone buy it? And he's probably the richest man, uh, one of the richest men in the world. But you see, that's not enough. Now he wants to be the most powerful man in the world. When contentment is not there, 
then there's no end to where we want to go. And the more we get and the more uncontent we are, the more strife that comes into our life. I, I think about things. I thought about this this week. In the book of Philippians, the book of Philippians is a prison epistle. That's where Paul is in prison. And he said in the book of Philippians, he says over there in 4.16, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Now he wrote that in, the, in Philippians. He's in jail. And I thought to myself, what a contrast. A jail cell in Philippi was large enough and satisfying enough for Paul. But on the other hand, I think of Alexander the Great, who at 33 years old died a suicide, died in a terrible way because at 33 years of age he had conquered the whole world and there was nothing left to conquer. And there comes a time in your life that the things that are going to break our backs is when we want this, we want this, we're not realistic about it, and we're not content with God, we're not satisfied with what God gives us, and then one day we hit the brick wall that there's nothing left for us. We've, we've got it all. And all the compounding effect. And I want to tell you something. You've got to be real careful wanting a lot of the things that we want when they're not the things that God wants. It's an incredible thing. Socrates, the great pagan philosopher, stated, contentment is natural wealth. Luxury is simply artificial poverty. Boy, that is so true. And he died and went to hell. But even a broken clock is right twice a day. I would say the richest man or woman on earth is one who simply desires nothing but the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has for him. The Apostle Paul said it again in Philippians 1.21. He says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He was content with what he had. Now, the principal application to this is to our own house, our families. You know, parents today are, are caught in a real trap, and I see it. And I'm, I, I, there's nothing we're going to do about it, nothing anybody's going to do about it, other than try to balance it. But, you know, when you look at history, the history of America, you, you begin to see what the problems are. Our youth today, and I speak and speak, with our kids being an exception to this, and, and many other kids that are good kids, but in, in, in our youth today is absolutely worthless. I mean, they are absolutely, totally are lost, and they just, they have no relevance of anything in life. Absolutely. And that's because that in America, you watch through the time of America, you watched America go through different ages. Back in the 1800s, we farmland was mostly farming and, and crops and people on farms, and they look at that as the, the agricultural age. And you're going to find that the family unit back then was, was really strong. The family unit back then was really good. Those families were solid. Those families, even the unsaved families, they were solid with principles and convictions. And the families were much tighter and closer and got through things together. You didn't have the divorce rate. I mean, when I was a kid growing up in the 50s and the 60s, divorce was unheard of. Back then in the 1800s, 
And you know why? Because in the agricultural age, life was real simple. You went out and worked hard on the farm. Your kids went to school and you came back and you sat around as a family. You didn't have television. You didn't have this. You didn't have that. You didn't have the video games. You sat around as a family. And you built your family. And in most cases, it was around the Word of God. About 1900, America moved in what has commonly been called the Industrial Age. This is where women start. We had two world wars during this, 1917, World War I, World War II, and then Korea and Vietnam. But in that early first two wars, this is where the women start to go to work. And great industrial things were done. This is where they built ships like the Titanic, you know, that were unheard of, <laughs> sank. This is where things were, that they, that they did everything that uh, great marvels. This is where the skyscrapers are built in New York, like the Empire State Building and, and some of the great stuff. It's incredible. In about the 1950s, we moved into the technology age. We got the atom bomb. We got into the space race with the Russians. Technology uh, began to uh, take, take hold. We went to some great strides and levels of learning. We come in our military and all this stuff, you know, in, the, in, our, in our technology of, of, uh, of the aircraft and stealth technology and all that. It was an incredible time. They got that out of Roswell in 1947 with the UFO that landed, but I'll tell you about that story later. <laughs> but it was, a, but it, it, was the, it was the it was the technological age, and today we live in a cyber age. Now your kids come home from school, they open up a little black box and step into a world that's not real kill people, cut their heads off, shoot them, get into situations where they chase monsters down the road, or in some cases, the monster's chasing you down the road. They go into a cyber world that isn't real, it doesn't exist. They step out of the family, they step out of life, they step out of everything that is real into a world that isn't even there. They communicate with people who are not even alive. They communicate and get into circumstances and situations that they never should be involved in. And, and then we wonder why our kids are so disjointed today. We, we, wonder why, we wonder why we have the problems we have. Instead of keeping the family simple and based and centered around God and the Bible and forming a good balance... Now parents today find a thousand things to get their kids involved in. They find themselves running and meeting himself, coming and going to get everything that they need to be. I mean, they get them to, uh, there's no time for anything spiritual. Uh, the verse says, better is a dry morsel and quietness wherewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife. House full of sacrifices. I'm telling you, parents today make some incredible sacrifices for their kids. And I get it. I get it. They'll sacrifice, parents will sacrifice everything they have to get their kids to a sporting event, to get their kids to here, get them to camp, get them to this, get them to that, get them to something at school, get them involved in this. <coughs> Dad will want to go do this. Mom will say, well, I really like to do this, but they'll make the sacrifice to get their kid there. I get it. Part of being a good parent is certainly making good sacrifices uh, for our children. But those sacrifices have to be based on you understanding the definition of a real sacrifice in the Bible. 
And many times, most of the time, they'll alter their whole life to get those kids where they need to be and everything for those kids. It's a house. Their house is full of sacrifices. But they're the wrong sacrifices. And those wrong sacrifices will only bring strife. And this is why parents have trouble with their kids. I don't know how many times I've sat down with a parent that said to me, I don't understand why my kid can't understand where they're at. And I think to myself, how could they? Every day of their life, they step out of this world into a world that doesn't exist. And that's where they spend most of their time. And then when they step back out of that world and you try to get back to them on a real plane, they're not in that world. They just spend most of their time in the other world. I guess it's just easier to keep them busy that way so parents don't have to get into the Bible with them and teach them about a real sacrifice. And I'll tell you what, understanding sacrifice for your children is based on you understanding the sacrifice that God made for his children. And you want to keep your sacrifices in line with that. Man said one time, Love and the fear of God are the two most important ingredients and furnishings in any home that completes it. You know, I was reading a story back in 1969, I think it was, maybe 68. There was a great flood in Mississippi. Thousands of people lost their homes. Thousands of people, tens of thousands, had to stay in shelters. And a a man wrote this story that he was walking through one of the shelters. And over here, he saw about eight to ten kids in the same family. And they were all sitting on cots. But he didn't see the parents. And the oldest was about, uh, oh, I don't know. The oldest was probably about uh, 18. uh, And then, you know, and then on down five, about five to 18 years old. And so he goes over them and he says, hey, kids, how you doing? They said, we're doing fine. He says, where's your parents? I was a little concerned. I see you guys all over here. And the oldest said, oh, my, my mom and dad are out looking for us for a new house. He said, well, that's really good. I hope you find one. He began to walk away, and the next youngest said, oh, yeah, mister, we're already a home. We're just looking for a house. You know, there's a difference between having a home and having a house. Do you understand that? There is a difference between just having a home and having a house. You, you, you can call a realtor and get a house. You can go to the bank and get a loan, get a GI loan and buy a house. That doesn't make it a home. It doesn't make it a home. Look at verse 2. Now, boy, here's a great one. A wise servant shall have rule over a son that causes shame and shall have part of the inheritance among the brethren. That was an incredible verse. Now, this is one of these verses that only come after you really, honestly, really learn your Bible. The average Christian could read that verse 30,000 times and never get anything out of it. It's one of the most powerful verses stuck back there in Proverbs that impacts you and me is unbelievable. You know, in some things in the Bible, some things just pop up. I told you this Thursday night. You get into the Bible, some things just pop up. There they are, right there. Grab them. You can get them. 
Obviously, the Bible says you got to search the scriptures or some things. You got to get into the word of God and search it out and pray it out. And God will give you those things. But there's some things in the Bible that just come with you paying your dues over the years with the word of God. Some things in the Bible that God gives you, you can look at it a thousand times. But until you get to that point in your life with God and your relationship with God and the Word of God and you've spent your time, paid your dues into the Bible, that's where you really get some great stuff. Like a verse like this. This verse here where it says, A wise servant shall have rule over a son that causes shame and shall have part of the inheritance among the brethren. That verse is aimed right at you and me at the judgment seat of Christ. You know what it says? It says if you don't get chapter 16 down, if you don't get the understanding and the wisdom of God, if you don't get the things in your life that God wants you to have, he says, read it. A wise servant shall have rule over, over a son that causes shame and shall have part of the inheritance among the brethren. A wise servant, that servant being based on Proverbs, uh, uh, Matthew 24, 25, all of Matthew and Revelation, that servant is a Jew in the tribulation period. It's a Jew going through the tribulation. Look at the book of Proverbs. In a doctrinal sense, it's all about the Jews in the tribulation period. It's about a wise man and a foolish man in Proverbs. That servant here, a wise servant shall have rule over a son. That's a man in the tribulation or an Old Testament saint that has rule over a son. Now the son will be a New Testament Christian that causes shame. Look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, when it talks about the church at Laodicea. He says, I counsel thee to buy gold tried in the fire, and get eye salve, that you anoint your eyes, that you might see. That he says that the shame of your nakedness not appear. Over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it talks about, it talks about the contest of the judgment seat of Christ. And it says that we want to be clothed, that we shall not be found naked. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. When you find three little words in your Bible, shame, naked, and appear, you want to stop and look at it. Because those three words, if they're used together, look out. You're talking about the judgment seat of Christ. And what he's saying here, through that one verse that is stuck way back in the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs, that most people read and never understand, because they don't spend any time with the Bible, that there's coming a day when a son, a New Testament child of God, who now is ashamed and loses his reward at the judgment seat of Christ and his inheritance, will lose his inheritance that God had for him and, and, and gets denied that reign with Christ where tribulation Jew who endures to the end gets through it, will reign with Christ and we won't. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 and 13 says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, can he cannot deny himself. And that's one of those verses that many, many people try to use to show you can lose your salvation. He's not telling you you can lose your salvation. What he's telling you is that you can lose your inheritance. You'll never lose your salvation, but what God has for you in the millennium, you can lose. And the verse is saying that a servant 
who endures to the end, who is wise and does what God said, is going to reign when a son who brings shame to himself and is naked to the judgment seat of Christ loses it. That's pretty powerful stuff. Look at verse 3. The fining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. But the Lord trieth the heart. What a great verse. You know, in history, we talk about the King James Bible being the Word of God. Most people look at us today like we're idiots because Nobody today believed that God had the ability or the power to write a book that could last and be perfect. Everybody thinks today that God needs their help to write a perfect book. I've always thought that, you know, the scholars will always talk about God will inspire the Word of God, but you don't have a perfect Word of God today. I always thought a God like that was pretty worthless. What good does it do me if God inspired a book if he wasn't God enough to preserve that book so I could have it. And of course, he did. And in history, and most people don't even have a clue of this, in history there's a real great study on the refining process of, of the Word of God. You know, the English language began around 900 A.D. in its most infant form. And it began to go through a process of development. If you ever looked at... <coughs> You know, a Wycliffe's Bible or even a very early uh, King James Bible, uh, you're going to find that you can't even read it. The English language is so different from then to now. It went through a, a process of time. And, you know, when God, when God spoke to man, uh, God only put his word into three languages. Uh, people get hung up, you know, on the King James Bible being English when there's so many other languages in the world. And that's because other than they're stupid. It's, it's because of the fact that they, they live in a world uh, that is so far removed. I guarantee you, back in the Old Testament times, there probably were Hittites, there probably were Amalekites, there probably were Philistines that had a hard time believing that God just wrote his book in Hebrew. But he did. If you're a Malachite, if you're a Hittite back in the Old Testament, whatever nation you come from, if you wanted to get God's word, you had to go to one language to get it. It was, it was Hebrew. When the world became a Greek-speaking world, through the Greeks and the Roman Empire, and the whole world, as far as God was concerned, was speaking Greek, then he put the New Testament in its early form uh, into Greek. And as the languages developed, and God was moving down through history, and he knew where he was going, he finally put the Word of God in an English form, because he knew that the English language was going to become at the time of the second coming of Christ, the time that we're living in, would be the universal language of the world. And it is. And I've had guys dispute that all, all, all my life. And they'll say, well, how can you say that? There's more people that speak this language than English. And I say to them, you know what, pal? It's not, English is not the language uh, of the universal language because I chose it. It's the universal language of the world because that's what God chose. Amen. Back in the Old Testament, when all the Hittites and the Amorites, as I said, didn't have the Word of God in their language, you see God running around to get it to them? 
God chooses what language he's going to use. Now, if you have a problem with that, that's your deal. He chooses how he's going to do things. And uh, you don't like that because that cuts you out of it that you can't correct him. See, I know where you're coming from. And I look at that English language as it developed and I see, <clears throat> I see that finding pot and that furnace for the word of God as it developed itself. Psalms chapter, look over at Psalms chapter 12. It's an incredible passage. Psalms chapter 12, verse 6 and 7. Many of you probably have this in your Bible. If you don't, you certainly ought to mark it today and, and put what I'm about to give you in here. Our verse says, The finding pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord trieth the hearts. Psalms 12, verse 6 and 7 says, The words of the Lord are pure words. Our silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. You know, down through history, you have seven, I told you English was going to be the universal language by which God was going to put the final form of the Word of God in, in the King James 1611. That verse says that they're pure words, purified seven times in a furnace of earth. You know that your King James Bible went through seven English translations to get to the one that you have today? Wycliffe in 1392 was the first one. First English translation. Tyndale, 1532, was the second one. Second English translation. Miles Coverdale was the third one, 1539. Matthew Henry, 1537, his was the fourth English translation. Coverdale's Great Bible in 1539 was the the fifth one. The Geneva Bible in 1560, that was the sixth one. The seventh one was the Bishop's Bible of 1568. And in your Bible, you know that the number eight is the number of new beginnings. It singles, it settles when God is finished with something, and now it's perfect, and it's on its way. And the eighth Bible that came out after the being purified seven times, down through history of English translations, was the King James 1611 authorized version. Now, when God put that out, just by added information, your King James Bible goes through seven editions, not translations. Big difference. Seven editions. In those seven editions, the language changed, the weights and measures changed, nothing in the text or the doctrinal things changed, but things in life changed that had to bring it up to speed so it would be accurate in everyday people's lives as far as the fundamental things of life. So you have an edition in 1613. You have an edition that came out in 1644. You have an edition that came out in 1676, one in 1680. You have one that came out in 1701, one that came out in 1767. And the one that you hold in your hand today is the seventh and final edition that was came out in 1769. The Bible you hold in your hand today, if you got one of ours or got one of a original or a true King James Bible, has not been altered and changed in any way, shape, or form since 1769. That is the final edition, and it was perfected at that point. Everything was up to speed, and then God took that around the world through the Philadelphian church age and gave it to us today in the end times in the universal language of English. You see, it goes through a process. You and me and our bodies and our lives, we're likened to earthen vessels. We're likened to vessels of gold and silver. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, it says that you and I, as Christians, are vessels of honor or vessels of dishonor. But no matter what, if you're going to be a vessel for God, you're going to have to go through the fire. You're going to have to be purged. You're going to have to be refined. Just as God's Word had to go through a burning and a refining to get to its perfect form in the language, not in its doctrine, but its language, you and I, to be a vessel fit for the Master's use, we're going to have to go through the refiner's fire. You're going to have to get purged like silver and gold. And when you take silver and gold and you put it in a fire, it only purifies it. It, it refines it. It gets the impurities out. All the dross comes up to the top and you scoop it off. And then you get that 99.999999% pure gold. And we are likened to vessels of silver and gold. He says over there in 2 Timothy 2, in a great house, there's vessels of honor and there's vessels of dishonor, gold and silver. And he said a man gets purged from these and becomes a vessel fit for the master's use. Silver. Silver in the Bible always relates to the price that Christ paid on Calvary's cross. He was sold by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Gold in the Bible will always represent who God is. Once you get saved, ladies and gentlemen, you begin a process of, material, of spiritual growth. You begin a process that leads to hopefully your spiritual maturity. You're going to make some mistakes in life. You're going to do some really dumb things. You're going to do some things in life that you may think and look back on and feel terrible about. I've told you many, many times, the bottom line is, as long as you learn from it and grow through it, it doesn't matter. But here's the key. The only way you're ever going to mature is that whatever you go through, whether you go through the refining's fire because of your own stupidity, or you go through the refiner's fire for standing for God. That those two things, gold and silver, in either case, come out stronger than anything else in your life. Amen. That through the purging, whether you do it because of your stupidity, or we do it because we're standing for God and we actually have to pay a price, which is not many of us. The end result is you come out understanding better, pure, the price that was paid. The only thing that's going to keep you from going back into the world. The only thing that's going to keep you from going back into sin is to get purified in the price that he paid for your soul. My sermons won't do it. My website won't do it. One-on-one -on -one with me won't do it. You have got to come to the place in your life where you get purged and refined pure every day on the price that he paid for you that you never want to leave him again. Amen. That's right. And then you got to purge the gold. You got to know more about him and love him more every day that no man, no woman, no person on this planet will ever take his place in your life. That doesn't happen because you just get up and come to Sunday school, which we don't have, so you missed it if you came this morning. It doesn't happen because you go to church, it doesn't happen because you go by the right Bible. It happens because. Whether it's because of your own stupidity 
or it's because if you're actually standing for God, you went through something, you paid the price, you went through the refiner's fire, and you, through that process, you relearned and got back to how much he loves you, who he is in your life, what he did for you, and you allowed your stupidity, you allowed your stand, you allowed whatever you went through to purify that in your life. Amen. And in the Bible, the process of spiritual growth and maturity is so very clear. It's simply found in the Old Testament in four simple points. Malachi chapter 3 verse 2 simply says that silver and gold has to be purified for God to accept it. And in Numbers chapter 31 verses 20 through 23, you find the process for doing that. He says in verse 23, you have to make it go through the fire. It's got to go through the fire. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 22 shows us how it's done, how the refining pot is used. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10 indicates that the trials of the saints are for the very purpose of this refining. Now, I say those four points to you, but I'm going to tell you right now, that's an impossible concept for most of God's people to get today. We live in a world because the charismaniacs and all the idiot people out there think that if something bad happens in your life, it's because of the devil. And if something good in your life, it happens because of God. We live in a world today that we can't, we, things come into our lives and we cannot simply understand why they do. We're so into ourselves. We're so lost touch with God. We have no concept of what he is in our life. We have no concept of the price that he paid for me. You know, there are many times when somebody is going through something tough. I don't do this. I do my job. I'm very sympathetic. I'm very kind. I'm very absorbing. I'm very tender. I'm very this. But sometimes when somebody sits there who I think they should know better, and they're laying all this out to me of what they're going through and this and that. And, oh, uh, this happened to me and that happened to me. And, oh, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And this person is this and this person is that. Sometimes I just want to look at them and say, why shouldn't you? Are you any better than God's son? You actually think that he was, pure, he, was, he was perfected for the work of God on the cross of Calvary and all that he did? And for you to be perfected, you're not going to have to go through anything? Do you set yourself that much higher than him? Now, I don't think you set yourself that much higher than him. I just think you're stupid when it comes to some things in the Bible. And if the word stupid bothers you, dumb. <laughs> it's impossible for God's people, for the most part, to grasp what I'm saying today. I have people I deal with all the time, and they, they get mad at God because they go through some tough things. I just thank God that God didn't get mad at me because he had to go through some tough things. Amen. How stupid we are. I'm getting to like the word stupid. How ridiculously stupid we are. Well, I'm mad at God because he, he allowed this to happen in my life. When Christ was hanging on the cross, you know what he cried out? He cried out, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? He cried out, I thirst. He cried out, into my hands, I commend my spirit. Not one time did I ever see him blame God and say, you know what? I'm really upset with you for allowing me to go through this. You see, 
He went through it for you. And what you go through in your life, whether it's through your own stupidity or you're standing for God, God wants to use it to help somebody else. Oh, you're willing, I'm willing to let God go through it so he can help me, but then we're not willing to go through it so we can help others. Yeah. Is that how it works? That's exactly how it works. Now, I must confess, I'm off my notes at this point in time. Amen. I'm off my notes at this point in time. Simon Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, he calls this fiery trials. The great refining process in our lives. Over in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, he calls it the fiery darts of the wicked. Verse 3 says, but the Lord trieth the hearts. The Lord trieth the hearts of his people to refine them, <coughs> purify them, make them a fit vessel for the master's use. So he tries them with sickness. We were talking last night, I forget who was asking me about Manly Beasley. Who was that? Who asked me about Manly Beasley last night? Manly Beasley was a great, great Christian. I knew him pretty well, and I, I heard him preach many, many times. Some, many of you did. Manly Beasley was dying of about three different diseases. He looked like he was already dead. I remember he'd come to preach, and he'd preach an hour, maybe 45 minutes, and then he'd have to go back to the hotel and lay down. He just didn't have anything to give. He looked at his suffering, and through that suffering, he had some of the greatest things you ever, ever heard in your life that he learned through what he went through with his afflictions. Sometimes when God puts you through a sickness, most of us whine about it, we cry about it, See, we don't ever stop and equate whatever our grief is and what our sickness is with what Christ went through on the cross. Because life is simply all about us, isn't it? Yeah, amen. So we, 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 we lose that. Old Manley said one time, he said, do you have a problem trusting God? He was speaking to a bunch of people. He said, you know, I was thinking this morning when I got up, and he was really sick. You could tell. He had wiped his mouth. He had to have water there. He was very, very sick. And he says, I was thinking when I, when I got up today, what did God create first? Air or man's lungs? Speaking of Adam. And he said, you know, I thought about this morning. God created the air first before he ever made man's lungs. In other words, you worried about something in your life? God created the supply Amen. before Adam ever had the need. Right. Now, most of us would have got up that morning sick and we'd have whined and complained <laughs> about the fact that, oh, I've got to go to church today. I don't feel good. Well, if I don't go, Bob will call me this afternoon, so I might as well just go, get him off my back. <laughs> no, I'm not calling you. Don't come if you don't want to come. Amen. Fine with me. He, he had some great stuff. Sometimes God uses sickness. Sometimes God tries us with sorrow. I remember studying in church history Robert Moffat. Robert Moffat was a missionary to 
Cape Town, South Africa. He spent 51 years on the mission field. He buried his wife, all of his children on the mission field. Once he left, he never came back. He stayed there and himself was died. I think of, I think of Dr. Livingston, missionary to Africa. We always heard it in my day growing up. You kids don't know it much. The, the little phrase, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Dr. Livingston was a missionary that went into Africa, and he disappeared in Africa. And a guy, a New York Times reporter by the name of James Stanley, went to find him. And the story goes that he was going through the jungles of Africa, way in the interior, and he come around a bend by a river, and there was a little camp, and there was Dr. Uh, there was, uh, Dr. Livingston, a medical doctor. He didn't have the gift of healing. <laughs> and they met, and this is where Stanley said, Dr. Livingston, I presume. I guess so. Everybody else is natives around you. That would be the only white guy there. That would probably be him. Good guess. <laughs> he loved Africa so much that when he died, the African tribe that had won so many of them to Christ put his body in a very special casket, carried it all the way down to the thing and took him back to England and he's buried in Westminster Abbey. But before they did that, the Africans cut out his heart and buried it in Africa. You know, I read things like that and I ask myself, I wonder if I died tonight where they'd bury my heart. I wonder with God's people today, if we died today, where would they bury your heart? Sometimes God tries us with sorrow. Sometimes God tries us with loneliness. I think old John, who wrote the book of Revelation, exiled out on the Isle of Patmos. I think of Paul in prison by Rome. How lonely that must have been. Sometimes God tries us with bereavement. Sometimes with pain. If you ever get to read a book by a guy by the name Watchman Nee, Watchman Nee was one of the greatest men of the 20th century. He was in communist China. Fervent Christian. Wrote some books. No one ever know what happened to him. Harvin Popoff wrote the book Tortured for His Faith. Incredible pain they went through. And you know, the average Christian hears that, me say that, maybe some of you here today, you hear me say that, and you sit back there and you think to yourself, well, I don't know, I wouldn't want a God like that. <laughs> you don't get it. You don't get it. You see, it all comes back. You can endure whatever suffering you go through if you've been purified in the gold and the silver and you understand what suffering he went through. Amen. You can get through anything for him. Because you understand and fully comprehend what he went through for you. I want to tell you something, folks. High quality gold and silver used to make choice vessels for God cannot just be dug out of the hillside. It has to go through the fire. You see, the early church was severely persecuted for the very Bible that you hold in your hands and don't bother to read. They went through tremendous times of going through the fire. 
But the devil learned because back then he wanted to stop Christianity and he wanted to put an end to it. And what he learned was a great lesson. And I would have thought he would have known this, but maybe his pride didn't let him see it. I would have thought that he would have figured out that if you want to stop Christianity, don't persecute it. If you want to stop Christianity, give a modern 20, 21st century America with everything you have and all that you want and all that you're not content with. Listen, it's hard to get this Christian world we live in today to see this. But men like Sam Jones, men like Manly Beasley, men like Bob Jones Sr., men like Robert Moffat, Dr. Livingston, Mordecai Ham, John Rawlings, J. Frank Norris, Pete Ruckman, Mel Sabaka, they're never produced in Santa's workshop. <laughs> they come from the refiner's fire. They come from the smelting pot, the blast furnace, and the anvil of steel of this world that forges them. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 19 tells me that remembering my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. You know, and I, I speak about myself here again, and I don't, just to make a point. At my age, I, I look back and reflect on a lot of things. I'm at the point now where I probably write more things down I want to remember that I've learned than, than ever before. And I try to put, honestly, I try to put all of it into an easy format for me, but also for you. You know what a great tragedy was? Tommy, you hear me talk about Tommy Thomas, Mel Sabaka. They were great men. Phil Ward was another one. They were great men. And they formed and shaped so many lives. But you know, none of them left anything behind for anybody to read. There is nowhere, anywhere on this world, a correlation of what Mel Sabaka thought about anything. Nor Tommy Thomas, nor Phil Ward, or any of those guys. And I have made up my mind, at least that when I pass off the scene, there'll be some things left behind that somebody else that cares to can maybe learn from some of the things that I learned in life. So I, I write them down. I've learned that godly affliction will only lead to our spiritual promotion. Amen. You know, in combat, in the military, the greatest officers who were the greater leaders were not always the ones who came out of West Point, nor the ones that came out of OCS. The greatest combat officer leaders were the ones that got battlefield commissions. They fought alongside of the enlisted men and then came to the point that they earned their bars on the combat field, not the playing field of West Point. I've learned that the blow to the outward man should only be a blessing to the inward man. 
I've seen the great trials <coughs> are just preparation for great missions that God has for us. Enduring a hardness is the good soldier of Jesus Christ. And I, and I, and I know today that pain, pain is neither a blessing nor is it a curse. Pain is an opportunity. And I've learned that you'll never understand life till you see and understand that our trials are nothing more than training for our greatness. Because God has something He wants to do with you. Every man in that Old Testament that became what God wanted him to be, found in Hebrews chapter 11, went through the fire. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35, and it says that women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings, scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. And our greatest strife this last week was the air conditioner went out at work, and it was really hot. I've learned, and I better understand today, that the crown of the highest achievement for a child of God will always be a crown of thorns. And I understand that the more suffering you go through, the better you're able to communicate. Yes. Suffering is a universal language unto itself. And the more you go through what you go through and you learn what you need to learn, the better are you in a position to help somebody else in their time of need. I've learned a great truism in life. Where there's no grindstone, there'll never be an edge and a tool to keep it sharp. I've learned that wherever there's movement, there will be friction. And I've learned that small fires, small furnaces, produce small faiths. I call it campfire Christianity. The kumbaya crowd. The closest they ever get to the fire is roasting their weenie or their marshmallows. And I've learned that you go from strength to strength by simply going from struggle to struggle, growing through adversity. And in case of our self-inflicted wounds where we do our own stupid things, and we all do, Sometimes it takes a really hardened tool to knock the rust off of our hearts. 
And I think today, our greatest affliction in life is to go through life having never been afflicted. Because adversity will always be the pathway to truth. Who I am, who he is, and what I need to do. He who never knows trouble will never know himself, his strengths or his weaknesses, or the God that loved him and died for him. And he'll never be satisfied. I've learned that adversity is the best process in finding friends. The best friend you'll ever have will be someone who will stick with you through everything. Because the Bible says in the book of Proverbs that a friend loveth at all times. A brother is born for adversity. And there's one that sticketh closer than a brother. And I know in the context that that's talking about Christ. But you know what? When you and I are Christ-like, you'll go through anything with somebody who you really love that's really your friend. It won't matter what they did. won't matter anything at all. You'll see within them what God sees. You'll see within them where they're at, where they're struggling. And the fact is, that's my friend. And I will go through their adversity with them. Their adversity will become my adversity. Their pain will become my pain. Their struggle will become my struggle. Greatest, greatest, greatest process in finding a friend. You know who your friends are, but what they're willing to go through with you. And then finally, these are just things that, that I write down, that I thought about, think about. Some of them I got here, there, and they meant something to me, but finally it's never a bad thing to have to be thrown in the lion's den as long as the lion of the tribe of Judah goes with you. Now these are things you should put on your refrigerator, but you need a bigger refrigerator. I said last week, and somebody asked a question Thursday night about forgiving and forgetting. <laughs> Don't ever be ashamed of what you've done in life if, it, if it, you did it on your own stupidity. Don't ever be upset and ashamed if it makes you better. Amen. Don't ever let others mark you or try to keep you down by making you feel unforgiven or second class because... In their mind, they never struggled to where you were. Probably they have. Because whether we go through the trial for God's glory or we go through the fire because of our own stupidity, God will use it. Yes. If we let him. Right. Two great verses. Second Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You take your stand for God and try to do what's right, <clears throat> you're going to go through some fires. 
And sometimes we go through the fire because of our own selves. And for us, that'll be Hebrews chapter 12, where he says, verse 5, Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh to you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For they vary for a few days, chasing us after their own pleasure, our parents, but he, God, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, and it doesn't, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, let me give you something here that I want you to take with you today. Getting God's perspective and His wisdom and understanding. When we get out of fellowship with God, Hebrews chapter 12, it says that we go through the fire of chastisement. It also says that it's not joyous or pleasant as we can all attest to. But it also says in verse 10 that it's for our profit and it's going to yield peaceable fruit unto God. Now here it comes. If you don't get anything else I've said today, get this. Here it comes. He loves you and me so much and wants us to have a full reward. And he knows there's coming a day when you're going to stand before him that if you don't do what's right, he'll take those rewards away. Bible says, every man's work shall be tried by fire for the day shall declare it. And every man's work shall be tried of what sort it is. God loves you and me so much that when we do stupid things down here, get out of fellowship with God, and we all do, God comes down, puts us through the fire of chastisement and affliction here so you'll learn the lessons, get right, that in that day at the judgment seat, you never have to face that fire. If that don't make you love him, I got nothing else to say to you. He loves us that much. And God's people say, why is he putting me through this? Why am I have to deal with this? Why me? Why me? Why not you? Yeah. Amen. Amen. A loving God loves you so much that he comes down and he'll put you through the fire here so you'll have your full reward over there. Amen. And you don't understand that and you don't like it. God help us today. God help us today. 